to admire excessively. When was the last time that you admired the Lord excessively? When was the last time you really, when you think about it, you admired the Lord excessively? And then how do you quantify excessively? I'll tell you how you quantify excessively. It's by looking and saying, well, that's more than what I would have done. Like if, if we're driving by a home and we see a home that's a multi-million dollar home, have you ever passed one of those homes and you looked and you thought, wow, that's big, that's really excessive. We're talking about like they've got three tennis courts. Like you don't have enough people living in your home to have three tennis courts. That's excessive. To admire excessively. We can see from these definitions that worship involves more than attending a church service. It's more than just singing some songs and clapping our hands and lifting our hands, and it's more than lifting our voice. It's more than taking part in a service. Now, taking part in a service, it's important. What we do in singing and in worshiping and lifting our hands to the Lord, those are important things. I would not want to have service without that, but I want us to understand today that does not define true Worship. What happens across the world in church services may be labeled by us as worship, but I want us to understand that if it does not meet the Lord's definition, the Word of God's definition, then it is just empty. It is not worship by definition. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at a well outside of the city. And through their discussion of spiritual things, she recognizes, because Jesus tells her of her history without knowing her, that he is more than what she has perceived. He is a prophet. She says, I I perceive that you're a prophet, verse 19. And then verse 20, she begins to lay out this argument of disagreement, this controversy that has taken place in the religious world of where should God be worshipped. She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. The temple in Jerusalem was the place where God had chosen to be His dwelling place, and so for the Jews, it was the dwelling house of God. It was the place you would go for worship. And So if you met a Jew on the street, and you were in some other city, and you'd say to them, where is your God? And they'd say, well, he's, he's over in the temple in Jerusalem. They had a specific place that he dwelt, a place of worship that was constructed specifically for him. The Samaritans had established a competing place of worship, a mountain, Mount Gerizim. And they, there they would go to the mountain and they would worship. And she was laying this this thing out in front of her. We don't know out in front of the Lord. We don't know her motivation. Maybe she was trying to distract from uh, the real issues in her life. Maybe uh, she was just trying to test him or try him. But Jesus' response 
goes beyond just recognizing a place and a time of worship. His response defines what true worship is supposed to be. Because in verse 21, he said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. The hour is coming when you're not going to be going to the mountain to worship and it's not going to be necessary to go to Jerusalem to worship. And so Jesus was making a point to say the time is coming when worship will not be tied to location. Verse 23 says the hour is coming now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. He says, the hour is coming and now is. Worship will not be tied to a location, but it will be tied to a people. It will be tied to true worshipers. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Now, Jesus' statement should be a little bit alarming because it lets us know that there was currently, there was then, there currently is now, and there will continue to be. A false worshippers. So if there's true worshippers, there must be false worshippers. And it's easy for us to pick out any number of false religions or false uh, worship modes of worship. Worship of nature, worship of the sun, worship of stars, or any worship of false idols, worship of false gods. It's easy to pick those things out. Sometimes it's easy to pick out the worship of America's gods. The gods of pleasure and the gods of status and the gods of material things and the gods of wealth. It's easy to pick those things out. But notice what Jesus said. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. It's often easy to see a lack of truth in worship. You don't have to dig super deep sometimes to know if, if someone is just not familiar with truth. I've had conversations with people over theological things and come to realize pretty quickly they just don't quite know the Bible. They know some history, but they don't know what the Word says. Sometimes those things stand out, but what about the spirit of worship? That's a little bit more difficult to, to pinpoint and put your thumb on. We could say that Jesus is referencing the spirit of a person. He uses the same word as, as the Holy Spirit, pneuma, but he's not talking specifically about worshiping in the spirit of God. He's talking about the spirit of the person in worship. Doctrine, truth must be right, but... What about the spirit in which worship is done? What about the heart? What about the spirit of the person offering the worship? You see, the guilt of the Pharisees was not the abundance of rules and laws that they had written, although that was a major issue. It was that their worship said one thing, but their spirit, their heart, the things that were unseen said another thing. Jesus cited Isaiah 29, 13 in Matthew 15, 7 through 9 as a rebuke to this approach to worship. He rebuked the Pharisees for this. He said, hypocrites, 
Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth. They're saying the right things. They're worshiping with the right words. And honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me. Because worship is more than just having the truth of the Word of God. It's more than just saying the right things and acting the right way and doing the right things and living according to what God directs us to. It's also about the heart. It's the unseen things. It's the spiritual things that only God sees. There's worship outside of that. Right heart, right spirit. It's empty. It's vain. It means nothing. He said, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Their worship is empty because their spirit is not right. You see, we cannot worship God acceptably without both right doctrine and the right spirit. I'm going to tell you, the hardest struggle living for God is not seeing and understanding right doctrine, a lot of times it is my spirit and making my spirit surrender to the right doctrine and right things of God. Now, if you don't struggle with that, come talk to me. I want to learn everything I can from you. Because sometimes that is the struggle. I can do the right thing and have a wrong heart about it. I can say the right thing and my heart not be right. I can do some things in the right way, but my spirit not be right. We may sing, play music, teach and preach, but until our spirit is right, our worship is in vain. Worshiping in spirit and in truth reveals more than just that you believe what the Word of God says. It shows that there is an inner work going on and an outward work going on. Truth coming from the outside. Spirit moving from the inside. Jesus said, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. What is He looking for? He's looking for true worshipers. He's looking for people that they have a right spirit and they have a right truth. God is seeking true worshipers. This is the kind of worship that God blesses. Mark chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 15, a Gentile woman came to Jesus desiring him to deliver her daughter from a demon. This woman, she was a Greek. She was Gentile. She was not a Jew. She was a Syrian woman from the city of Phoenicia, Syrophoenician woman. And she follows Jesus and his disciples And she cries out to him, have mercy on me. O Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is severely demon possessed. He didn't answer her. He ignored her crying. He ignored what she was saying. He ignored her to the point that his his own followers started saying, she is bugging us. She's not getting to you, she's getting to us. Do something about this woman. Release her. Tell her to go away. Send her away. She's driving us crazy. 
Over and over, she just kept saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter, severely demon-possessed. Verse 23, he answered her, Not a word. Disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away. She cries out after us. She's annoying us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the, house, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He says, I, I did not come for her. I didn't come to do a work for her. She has no part in my purpose here. You see, she was asking him through the claim of the Jews, the lineage of David. She said, oh, son of David, have mercy on me. She was claiming something she had no right to claim, a blessing that was specifically for the house of Israel. She had no right to it. You know, it's, it's interesting. You read this story and you think about what's going on, and oftentimes we look and we think, man, that's, that's harsh. That's really harsh. And you think about uh, somebody who comes up and they're asking for help, and they're asking for help. Most of the time we, we'll ignore, we try not to be too rude, this looks like a very rude interaction. My daughter, severely demon-possessed, have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David. And Jesus says she has no right to these blessings. I did not come for her. I came for the house of Israel. And I can relate to this woman because I have no right to the blessings of God that I get to enjoy. You have no right to the blessings of God that you get to enjoy. We have no entitlement to such things. She cried out, help me. He said, not, not this time. These are not for her. But verse 25, her approach changes. It says she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. She continues to say the same thing, but something about her approach changed. She worshipped him. And her worship gained his response. He had been ignoring her to the point that the disciples we're saying, you've got to do something about this woman. But now that her approach changed and she began to worship him, saying, Lord, help me, all of a sudden it gains a response. And it's not quite the response you expect to see. He answers her and he says to her in verse 26, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now, immediately we think, man, what an insult. He is insulted her. I mean, she should just walk away and forget about him because of this insult. I mean, what an insult he's levied 
at her. And it appears that Jesus closes the door on her request with this insult. But she could have went away hurt. She could have went away insulted. But for her and her boldness of faith and her need drove her to a place where she does not hear what everyone else hears. And she doesn't hear what you and I read of her being a dog and not fit to be fed from the master's table. Instead, what she hears is she hears there's an opportunity because even crumbs of the children fall from the table and the dogs get to eat up the crumbs. I was in college, I waited tables in a restaurant and I can remember waiting on on many families that had young kids and whenever a family came in was seated, sat at my table where I was going to wait on them, They had small children. I went ahead and I prepared. I knew as soon as they left, I would have to vacuum underneath that table. Just part of it. Because children drop food. And I'm telling you, sometimes it'd be just, we could have put the bread back together, resold it. There were so many crumbs on the floor. She recognizes an opportunity that Children always leave crumbs. You may have come for the children of the house of Israel, but when those children are done, there's going to be crumbs left. And if I can just get a crumb, if I can just get a little portion, no, the blessings may not be for me, but I know if I worship you in my right spirit, in the right truth, that there is an opportunity. And her worship opened the door for Jesus to see her faith. It opened the door for Jesus to see her faith. And he even comments about her faith. Great faith, it's done. You can just go home. It's settled. It's finished. Her worship opened the door for Jesus to see her faith. So sometimes you get into these moments and we think, I believe God can do something about it. Spiritually, you feel tied. You don't feel like worshiping. You don't feel like lifting your voice. You don't feel like raising your hands. You don't feel like singing a new song. You don't feel like doing any of those things because you just feel bound into your situation. But I want to tell someone today that your worship will open the door for Jesus to see your faith. Your worship will open the door. It's the worship that Jesus blesses. This woman had no position. She had no relationship or reason to ask for what she was wanting. She had no part in the purpose that Jesus was there in that moment at that time. But her worship. She had the worship that God blesses. Her spirit was right. The truth was in front of her, manifest in the flesh. And her worship opened the door for Jesus to see her faith. I'm getting ready to end. I feel the presence of God, the Spirit of God here right now so very strongly. I want to invite you to stand with me. There is power for deliverance in your worship. 
You touch the heart of God when you come with a right spirit and you begin to worship. Jesus said to the woman at the well, the hour is coming when you will neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. The time now is where the true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. In 2020, I want you to understand going into this year, your worship should not be tied to a location. It's not tied to being here. Your worship, it's not, it's not tied to circumstances. Paul and Silas praised and sang worship in the prison in Acts chapter 16. It shouldn't be tied to your circumstance. Your worship is not tied to an inheritance. Just like the Gentile woman in Matthew 15 showed us. She had no part. But your worship is tied to your spirit. Is it right? Your worship is tied to His truth. Are you surrendering to it? Her worship opened the door for Jesus to see her faith. I want to give us an opportunity to worship the Lord before we leave today. I wonder if right now, whatever is going on in your life, whatever you've been walking into this new year with, maybe a holdover from 2019, some of the same struggle. I wonder if you'll take your worship and begin to open the door and let God see your faith. My faith says that no matter what I'm going through, God, I'm going to trust you, showing through your worship. God, my faith says that no matter how big the mountain is that I'm going to have to climb, I'm going to keep walking, showing your faith and your worship. The Spirit of God is talking to someone right now. She's going to begin to sing. I wonder if you would just open that door right now. Worship is, it brings deliverance. It opens a door. It does something that no other thing can do. It welcomes the presence and spirit of God right into your situation.